have an important panel this morning. So um, here with me, I've got Andy Woodard. I also have Dr. Bill Roach, and as well, James Lindsay. And one of the reasons I wanted to do this um, particular panel, and I wanted John Benzinger to be with us as well, but I know that he has a previous commitment this morning that he had to make, was that it's important right now, because we find ourselves at another crossroads. And the crossroads is basically what has actually happened which seemed to have momentum, which seemed to have some actionable purpose with what you would call the push against the woke movement within Christianity. What happened? Because in the rest of culture right now, there is a doubling down against the woke, saying we want to expunge this from financial institutions, from the attempt to bring in ESG. I think it was that Vanguard announced that they're going to kind of rethink what they're going to do with ESG from public education and all the efforts that Moms for Liberty and others have put in to try to expunge critical race theory, the woke, this radical subjectivism from their ranks. There's a rethinking of things at major universities. There's a rethinking of policies and so forth at the political level. Um, and Stuart, did you need me to hesitate for a moment? But there's all of these things that are currently happening right now that are um, in the rest of our society really trying to make sure that their efforts are purposed and that people are taken out. So I want to just review first, personally, where we've been with this, and feel free to jump in at any point and interrupt, and we'll just keep on going. But if you go back 10, 12 years ago, when this stuff started to be infused, and we've talked about why this was being infused into Christian circles, it came in basically through those that were supposed to be the men who were the watchmen on the wall, through the gatekeepers, through the seminaries, through the denominational heads, through the parachurch ministries, even those that are involved with apologetics, all of a sudden, this critical theory, postmodernism, really what it is, it's a, you know, a Gnostic Hermetic kind of framework started coming into education and then as well into the Sunday school level and then eventually through sermons and then through large conventions, etc. Well, that started 10, 12 years ago. And a little bit further than that, actually, you could go back. And then um, there was basically a point where no one was really responding to this. I do want to make a caveat to that. I think there were some men that saw something was happening, couldn't really describe it necessarily, but they knew something that seemed to have some Marxian, <laughs> um, some, some of those properties to it. And I think you could say that J.D. Hall, formerly of Pulpit and Pen, and as well, Brandon House could see some things that were coming in. He's not a man who's necessarily in our theological camps, but he saw it. And I know we have a lot of disagreements with Brandon on some things, but you've got to give credit where credit's due. But because I had some knowledge, if you will, about what was happening, what was going on, and why it was going on, I started speaking about it. It was shut down, but then that eventually led us to start Sovereign Nations. Now, Sovereign Nations was not meant to just handle this in the church. It was meant to handle it across all of society. Sovereign nations is not a ministry. The reason that we called it sovereign nations 
is because we are concerned about keeping the sovereignty of nations, which is the whole thing that all of this is about. It's about destroying the sovereignty of nations, getting rid of your constitutional social contracts, and as well, transforming and transmuting all of humanity into something that would be called the singularity, into basically their understanding of creating God. So it, it's much broader than that. But I knew that I had to be broad in the way that I was actually handling it. So I started having conferences, started talking about it, um, started talking to a whole bunch of folks, was rejected. No one wanted to really embrace it for the first several years. Then eventually you had the absolute meltdown of, of parading CRT and all of its clown dress at the MLK 50 celebration and then at T4G. And finally, men started getting together to address this stuff. Uh, I think a lot of men were hesitant to because, again, as Pastor John was saying, they were doing a cost-benefit analysis. You know, if I do this, it's going to be costly. I won't be able to get those appointments. I won't be able to climb that ladder. There's a lot of guys that won't come and speak at my conferences. Maybe I won't be asked to speak at theirs. So I'm going to lose honorarium. I'm going to lose stature within the affinity community that I'm called to be accountable within. What you had to realize is that your community was already blown up. It was already becoming a simulacrity of what it, what it really was. So along the way, started talking to Bill Roach as well, Andy Woodward, but one of the men that really brought clarity to everything in my understanding was Dr. James Lindsay. But he wasn't doing it because he was trying to bring clarity into what was happening in the Christian world, which he refers to as Narnia. Uh, <laughs> I'm telling you, outside your circles, nobody knows what's going on. Right. So you got kings, you got rulers, you got never heard of any of you. Right. So he was speaking at, at Portland State University with some other folks and describing what intersectionality is and it actually has an Augustinian construct to it. And uh, I was just drying my hair in my restroom at a castle in Ireland, believe it or not. Strange story, but anyway. And they queued up on the YouTube was the next thing It's like, oh, wow, I've got to talk to this guy. He understands it, and he's saying it so clearly. So we brought James into things, and all of a sudden, we saw that it was necessary for eventually for us all to have a conversation. About what year was this? This uh, would be 2018. Okay, so was that before or after the statement on social justice? This is before the statement. Well, yeah, I first heard him before the statement on social justice. Um, and then while we were kind of dialing down to finally releasing it, which was a bit of a delay, and as well the statement on social justice and the gospel was, I think, defanged uh, from what it could have been. I don't think it was as robust as it should have been. Um, and, if, and if it had been more robust, we might have had less people sign it, but it would have been a much stronger uh, document that actually identified what the problems were. Um, but unfortunately, at that time, I think a lot of men weren't willing to do that at the time. I mean, it's still a good statement, without a doubt, but it needs to go much further than that. So, you know, you bring this forward to, then all of a sudden, James and I have a conversation with Peter Boghossian, and basically that was the thing that ripped the cover off of everything. The whole issue went from black and white to color because what we talked about was the fact that what was happening in evangelicalism and Christianity 
And even we, we were contacted afterwards of doing that talk by Roman Catholics, by Zen Buddhists, by all sorts of folks saying, it's happening here too, what you just described. So it was a universal. But then all of a sudden, the expert class within Christianity, I think, uh, has come alongside. But what would you say, uh, Andy, because I first started talking to you in 2019, what would you say has happened from that time when all of a sudden we had unification within just about every parachurch ministry and men that were willing to stand against this to what has happened now? Uh, so in 2019, um, the Dallas statement had come out. Um, after When was your conference in Tampa? 2020? Yeah, that was in the middle of the pandemic. Okay, so a year, a year after we met, the fall of 2020. Um, so at that point, there was still what I... I was more of an outsider at that point and not as involved in some of these things, but um, it looked in fall of 2020 as though there was a relatively great deal of unity amongst the signers of the Dallas Statement at that point. Um, I don't know if this is the direction you want to go right now, but the, the, the signers of the statement um, were still visually unified at that point. Um, now there was the now famous or infamous panel discussion at Shepherd's Conference with um, Phil Johnson questioning Al Mohler in particular, uh, but also Lig Duncan and some others sitting there on the stage, Mark Dever. Um, that was what, spring of 2019, spring I think? 2019, and actually that was when I first physically, well, no, it was the second time, but I met James and Mike Nana and Peter Bogosian to sit down and start talking about getting together. Yeah, so that, that was a key moment in this whole thing and will end up becoming a key moment again in 2022 from that um, with the aftershock or the effects of it or lack thereof. And um, then 2020, 2021, I mean, we had COVID, George Floyd, uh, just all these new things that were seemingly new but actually uh, in all likelihood, we're prepared and loaded in advance. Yeah, and um, then there was, you know, Blackout Tuesday, right? Tuesday, like sh post the black square on your social media account and um, seeing people who signed the Dallas Statement uh, posting black squares and just things like that where you're like, where actually do you stand on these issues? And is it just because you're going with the flow and a nice man named Michael Fallon happened to tap you on the shoulder and say, hey, come write a statement. And then now all of society is saying, hey, post this black square. Like that, that was a thing, it happened. Um, move, move forward, then um, there were uh, people in Southern Baptist circles where they're not allowed to speak out on woke issues that were um, trying to decide what they're gonna do, waiting for offers to come in for new employment because they couldn't speak on issues under a certain employer. So then, what, 21, 22, suddenly people are bursting on the scene now as courageous anti-woke um, that frankly weren't. Um, Signing the Dallas Statement, what, four years after it was written or something, uh, now assigning themselves a position of, of being a lion and a leader and courageous and bold and such, um, only then serving, uh, the, the next move is to then relentlessly attack Thomas Aquinas, which was completely yeah. random. Like, why are you doing that? 
like we've, we've all been getting along for years in this community, and all of a sudden, now we're knives to the throats. Yeah. Um, Aquinas, like, who even is obsessed with Aquinas? Like, um, R.C. Sproul liked him, but he's been gone for five years, and I just don't see this as the thing that needs to become the new div uh, divisive topic. So, uh, but, but that was really more about epistemology, uh, which is a theory of knowledge. How do we know stuff? Uh, what is your uh, worldview, basically? So uh, I saw that being generated out of a seminary in Arkansas, which was then just serving to divide the camp and tear down people with uh, classical epistemology, which is can toss the ball over to Bill to talk about what that even means. And then some of those people doubled down, unfortunately, and yeah. then as well declared the other side enemies. And yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think some of it is, is that there's a variety of issues on when this came about. And when you understand in particular just evangelical culture is that it's almost as though the, the roads were paved to get information down from the top to the people. And if you look at just the history of the Southern Baptist Convention in particular, you got the Sunday school boards that then give the information into the churches and so forth. You have the way that the convention relates to associations. And if you don't do what the people ask you to do in those situations, if you break that pipeline, you are seen as a disruptor and you're seen as an individual who's not going along with the groupthink of the convention. And people are very much aware of this. You know, one thing that I have said about this issue specifically within Southern Baptist culture is that you have a lot of people in my generation that sat at the feet of the previous generation hearing all the stories of the conservative resurgence. They knew the politics of the game, which means they knew how they got to that place and they also knew how to systematically undo the conservative resurgence. They knew the groupthink mentality that had taken place. So that said, they knew exactly how far to go, when to go, at the highest levels from how to elect a president, how to deal with boards over the convention, trustees at different seminaries. They knew exactly how long it was gonna to take to get a certain number of people who were favorable to the movements, exactly how votes went down, and all the different details with it. So there's no way to say that this just snuck up on us. It's a very systematic approach in which they have taken these different groups and different denominations in the direction that they're gonna go. Another thing of it is, is that we brought up this issue of watchmen. And watchmen can do one of two things. They can keep people out or they can let people in. And it's because they're the individual standing before the door. A doors can either, as we said, they can be a barrier or they can be an entry point. And when you look at just the way that the convention has functioned in the way appointments work, the way that faculty appointments have worked, this was not something that just snuck up on people or people in leadership, it didn't sneak up on them. Now it may have snuck up on the average individual because they're just not, not privy to it. So then you have to ask the question, well, what do you do about the people who knew and said nothing? Right. And there's this old phrase that says, there are two fears in life, fear of God and fear of man. And never let your fear of man trump your fear of God. And that's so much of what's happened. You have people that will say, 
I don't understand critical theory or I don't understand what's going on, which is just a way of just playing ignorant and naive when they knew what was going on. It's not, I mean, critical theory is really not like a robust theory in the sense like it's incredibly difficult to understand. You can get the basic premises of it and see what's going on fairly quickly. And you have guys that are claiming to be PhDs in all of these disciplines that say, well, I don't know. Well, what happened? They had a fear of man that trumped their fear of God. Right. But when things shifted, what happened is they tried to see, oh, that the convention might change a little bit on this or society is changing. They rode that wave in a different direction. It's almost like one man fought the thief that's inside your house. And then those figures waited until they were out at the police car and they took a picture for the media that day. And look how courageous. It's like, you didn't do anything to stop the thief. You're just standing there. Right. And I would say... Um and tell me whether you two would agree with me in talking in regards to James, is that James's scholarship uh, and then the books that he wrote basically became the basis, and, and many authors that are well-known that wrote some of the first books in Christianity were in pretty consistent contact with James. I don't want to name names and so forth right now on that, but he was basically the one that laid it out would you say that's that? exactly. You know, there's this this quote that's used in the history of philosophy by Alfred North Whitehead that says, in essence, the history of philosophy is nothing more than a series of footnotes on Plato. You either agree with him, you disagree with him, modify him, or some way, shape, or form. And I have said on multiple occasions, the history of the social justice debate is nothing more than a series of footnotes on James Lindsay. <laughs> But it's true. He did the hard research on it. He put it at a level that everybody could understand. He coined multiple great phrases, like standpoint epistemology, I think, is something that you have, I don't know if you coined that phrase, but you, you popularized that phrase. And in many respects, it's like, give credit to whom credit is due. Credit is due. Thanks, Ken. And... There's nothing courageous about stealing intellectual property and calling it your own. That's cowardly. It's true. Just, just admit for what it is. Not only is it cowardly, it breaks the ninth commandment. It's lying. But this debate fundamentally changed. It's sort of like, what was the watershed moment when the Trojan horse was released? It was as though the, the curtain was lifted. The video. Yeah, the video, the Trojan horse series. And... There is no excuse after that to play, I'm unaware of what's going on. If people are using that, they're playing the game, period. And so James, from like where you brought in, were brought into things, and then you saw the landscape of what was happening between 2019 and 2020 and 2021, and all of a sudden you were the one being interviewed. What did you see at the time, and what sort of metamorphosis have you seen to where we are today? I mean, my trip with Christians has been exciting. <laughs> I don't know if I should say it. Um, so I was obviously somewhat of a controversial figure right after. I mean, I'll just start because my, I, didn't, I didn't get to Narnia until we did the video at the top of the, man, the skyscraper. And so, you know, I met with Mike maybe February or March or something like this of, of 2019. And he's telling me about all these big figures and I'm like who what help I can't place I can't I have, can you draw a flow chart of these people I don't know who you're talking about and so I had no idea what was going on and 
Honestly, I hadn't even heard of this. When we sat on top of the rooftop, I had never heard of like any of these people. I didn't know who any of these people were, any of the big figures in the SBC. I mean, and um, I had no idea that there was a Resolution 9, which is, you know, now one of these infamous phrases. And so Mike turns on the camera and he's sitting there with us. He's like, I want to read this thing to you, Resolution 9. And first time I had ever heard it. And I was like, whoa, that's a Trojan horse, okay. And so off we go. That's where that whole thing kind of took off. And kind of very quickly, what happened was, as a very welcoming Christian community, you immediately pointed out, or many people immediately pointed out to your fellows, that guy doesn't believe in God, don't listen to him, we'll make our own books. And that, that was literally most of 2019. And I was like, oh, I see how this is, okay. Um, and that, that was the vibe. And then a lot of these people actually came around. I don't know if I won them over or if they caved in or what it was, but by kind of the beginning of 2020, I think you dragged me to a G3 conference or something. And it was my first like, holy crap, I'm Sammy Hagar moment. I'm trying to go to the bathroom. People are like, can I shake your hand? I'm like, can I finish this first? <laughs> that actually happened. That, that actually happened. I'm not like exaggerating. <laughs> like, let me finish this. My hand is busy. Uh, and so I became very like kind of popular in these conservative Christian circles that wanted to push back against social justice. And I got invited to a lot of things. I met a lot of people. I started to make a lot of friends. There was always, I'm not going to lie, this weird feeling that I had to be kept just a little bit outside of the circle. I had to endure these kind of, you know, not these attempts to say, oh, I, I'll pray for you. I hope you find God. I hope this. I hope that. Not, not these nice things people do. There was this whole like, yeah, but you're still, uh, we, you know, non-believer, we can't platform you. But, you know, we'll let you speak off on this, like, tangential side thing, but you can't be part of our actual conference. And so that's been, been it's like, let's, I'll just say it. I, frankly, I've been, like, the Christian rights ugly side chick. <laughs> <laughs> Do everything you want, but just don't tell anybody about it. And it's been palpable and real and a, an experience. I, I get this from the political right wing as well, so it's not just Christians. Yeah. Um, how many times have I been on Tucker Carlson? Zero. Zero. I have never been on Tucker Carlson. Get this from the, from the, the mainstream right as well. But so, your ideas have been on Tucker Carlson from other people that lift them from you. It's like, wow, I heard somebody on TV saying my stuff. Okay. And so that's great. At least it's out there, right? This is That's a footnote common. on James Lindsay, by the way. There we go. And, and so what I noticed, though, is that in the past, say, year, year and a half, that this kind of ugly side chick motif has increased. It's been more distance, not like, wow, his arguments have won me over. Wow, he's really pointed some things out. It's no, maybe he's actually a divider. Maybe he's somebody that's bringing division, wants to destroy the church, the same kind of things that people said in the very first reaction to the Trojan horse, kind of that went away and came back. And it didn't come back from the first people, and it didn't come back from, I mean, it was always kind of a constant refrain from kind of the big players uh, in the SBC that are, one would might expect, the woke pushers or whatever, the, the watchmen on the wall or the, the, the gatekeepers. They always kind of did the, oh, keep your distance from him. But then it started to happen from people that I had met with, that I had worked with, that I had given advice or been on their podcasts or talked to them while they're writing books or whatever it happens to be. And then all of a sudden, 
we're hearing lots of what you might call footnotes on James Lindsay while the person on the podcast is saying, well, I don't know about him. I think he's very divisive. He's trying to divide. He's stepping into theological waters that he shouldn't be stepping into. He's trying to direct the church. Let me just assure you, I have, I have no interest whatsoever in what you do in your church. I don't care. I want you to be able to worship freely as you see fit. That's all I care about. I have literally no concern about how you do that. It's up to you. It's your business to interpret your faith and your Bible and your whatever other scripture if you're not Christian. I don't care. I want to be left alone to, to determine these things for myself. I want you to have the same freedom. I want everybody to have that freedom. And so I don't have any interest in directing the church except that I do want the church to be able to see the thing that's holding itself out as a sweet fruit that's got poison in it. Um, and for this... There's been this now huge resurgence of let's keep our distance from this guy. And whether it's, you know, phrases that I borrowed from them, like standpoint epistemology, or things that I actually directly popularized, like, okay, groomer. Um, we'll see how drag Floyd goes. I'm trying to popularize that right now. <laughs> we'll see how much of my terminology actually kind of makes it into this lexicon from people who will, when you listen to their podcast, talk constantly about how you, nobody should listen to me because you can get their footnotes on me from them. And that's been my experience uh, in the past like three years, if, if I might be very frank about my relationships with Christian's world. And you, you'll see on Twitter that sometimes I get pretty pissed off at Christians because of it. And I get it. I really, I made a joke the other day, and so please, I know the difference between Christians and Jehovah's Witnesses. And I know the 144,000 people going to heaven thing is a Jehovah's Witness thing. But I was like, I, you know, sometimes I deal with these Christians and I'm just like, I understand why only 144,000 of you are making it. <laughs> and it turned into like angry Christian festival of James, that's Jehovah's Witness. I was like, I know, it's a joke, guys. It's a joke. <laughs> but there are reasons behind that frustration. Um, there is a palpable sense of having been used and uh, I've had actually, not members actually of Protestant denominations, these are Catholics, that have directly told me they're happy to use my stuff and that I will be discarded, forced, converted, or killed when they win. And so that gives me a lot of pause about what direction certain factions of what we might call Christianity or, or what we might call conservatism, but that are actually the reactionary element, what, what those are and where they're going and what, how that's going to be used within uh, even Protestant circles, from which I have not heard such dramatic phrases yet. And, and well, I would say, too, is that um, you, you go back to 2015, 2016, 2017, and so many of these men would not listen to me at all. And uh, it took 2018, 2019 before they said, okay, there's a problem. But now it's almost like, okay, well, thank you very much for all of your sacrifice. We're done with that now. And no, we're done Okay, of the figures that brought this into Christianity that were supposed to be the watchmen on the wall, how many of them have been moved out of their positions of power and influence? Zero. They said, well, Russell Moore, okay, ERLC, I give you that, but it was that stinking, rotting corpse of the ERLC is just as bad now as it was then. It never got any better. In other words, there's never been an attempt to correct it. All we did basically is like if, let's say, your wife has a cancer diagnosis 
We diagnose the problem. Oh, we know what cancer is, and cancer is really bad, and this is what cancer can do to your body and so forth. Yeah. Well, when's the operation? Well, you know, I mean, it's bad. It's bad. Okay, we're done with that now. But the cancer's still festering in the body. You haven't cut it out yet. And until you remove the cancer from the body, it's going to metastasize. It's going to get into every single organ. But here's the problem. It's already there. This is why one of the reasons James and I did the Mott and Bailey discussion over a year and a half ago is because they're right now in the Mott position. They were in the Bailey before. Believe me, those people that brought this in that have lied about their positions and been chameleons the whole time can't wait to bring it back in. But the thing is, is that basically you've done, many of the organizations and ministries that were with us before have declared a detente. It says, okay, well, we're not going to fight anymore. We're going to move past as brothers. Really? That's your brother? Don't ever tell me that you take church discipline seriously again. Because you don't. And that's the, that's the reality of this situation. But here's what we're going to do. It's Sovereign Nations. We're going to keep on fighting until we remove the cancer. And then on top of that, and I expect that these men, James will do that at New Discourses. But James, we will also have a positive side to say, you know, but this is what we should be doing. But I believe Andy Woodward, pastor of New York City, I think Bill Roach as well, and I think John Bensinger, who unfortunately couldn't be here right now, I think they're determined to do the same thing. Can I make a comment before it gets lost? Just a bit of a parable maybe, I guess, or a parallel uh, about these watchmen. I want to remind a lot of you, since this isn't a conference where I talk about the thing I mostly talk about this year, which is education, I want to tell you very briefly how the critical turn in education happened. Because it's an important story when we're talking about these watchmen. So it turns out we can talk about this Paulo Ferreri character and his, his literature, and he got an invite to Harvard in 68, and da da da, and he was largely ignored. Nobody cared. Zero. And then finally, there's this frustrated teacher by the name of Henry Giroux who gets mad one day that he can't do his woke garbage 70s style in the classroom. His principal's like, knock it off. Somebody had just given him a copy of Ferreri's book, Pedagogy of the Oppressed. Earlier that same week, they would call it maybe Providence if they believed in that kind of thing. And so he went home, read the book in one sitting all night long, didn't sleep, had what is undeniably, speaking as somebody who got into kind of a lot of studying woke, because I was studying religious conversion experiences, cult psychology, what causes people to get sucked into kind of fundamentalist cults was the question I was interested in. And he had undeniably what you would call a conversion experience when you read his own his own um, descriptions of it. It's obvious mania. It's obvious that he'd been set on fire by the spirit of Paulo Ferreri. So he doesn't sleep all night, rushes to the school. He starts immediately evangelizing to his principal. He's got a whole new model. He says, I've been given the language that I need. He had a death and rebirth experience into the pedagogy of the oppressed. And nobody cared. Paulo Ferreri was this kind of footnote in education theory, even within Marxist circles. They thought he was too much of a liberation theologian, too much of a weirdo, too Brazilian and not, you know, maybe German or something. They didn't pay much attention to him, or French, I guess. And so what did Giroux do? Giroux 
knew he wanted to get this stuff into education. He knew he wanted to get it into education. He knows that the way to get into education is by getting into the colleges of education, having studied Marcuse and understanding the long march of the institutions. And so what he, had, what, he, what he did was he went on what he called his praxis, which Mormons might call their mission or whatever, and he spent years going around getting infiltrators, getting Marxist professors tenured in colleges of education. Because what Giroux knew was that if you can capture the colleges of education, then you capture the teachers, and if you capture the teachers, then you capture the students, and from the students you get the future. And I would argue in my observations that the model being implemented upon Christianity is identical, that if you capture the seminaries, then you capture the pastors, and if you capture the pastors, you capture the laity. If you capture the laity, you capture the culture. And so they understand this, they understand this model, and Jeru's praxis was to make sure that there were watchmen in the colleges of education so that when Paulo's 1985 book got published, The Politics of Education, it set the world on fire, and by 1992, just seven years later, it was the standard in all colleges of education in North America. And it took getting about 100 plants stuck into the education system. Colleges of education were already pretty left, so it wasn't a super hard fight. But what you can say is there are people, and I think that this is accurate, whose job it was, and they were placed there or found their way there for whatever, whatever set of reasons to make sure that when these ideas like critical race theory, intersectionality, et cetera, started to flare up in the culture, that they'd be ready to make sure it got mainlined into the church. And every inch that got brought into the church would be an inch that never came back out. Right. And those are the people that we're talking about that are still in the same positions of power. It's a known insurgency model. So there's an insurgency to create a simulation or simulacrum of Christianity to replace Christianity without people realizing that it's happening right out from under them. Because if you just switched it up, hey, by the way, we got a new gospel, everybody would be like, wait a minute, what's going on? So it's got to be this kind of more gradualistic Fabian switchover approach. But I think that the, the, the method of deliberate praxis is very important. That there was somebody in the education world who went around and made sure that the people who would validate the theory were in place when the next big wave of the theory would come out. And then make sure it gets validated when that happens. And this is very likely what the state of large conventions are. Communists love monopolies. They love hierarchical bureaucratic structures. They love situations where everybody knows the game and then they start tweaking the game one community guideline or one community policy at a time until all of a sudden the whole game's poisoned and everybody is just kind of going along because they know that their career, they know that their future, they know that everything depends on them just squaring up with it. And I think that I don't want that part to get missed. Right in how we got here, because we started talking about what's happened since, but I think that before 2019 and 20, that this is really what brought it to this point where a statement on social justice and the gospel was necessary in the first place. This didn't just happen by accident. It didn't happen even just by drift. It happened by deliberate placement of people who would behave the way that they needed to behave so that when the ideas came to the fore, they would be meshed into the program. Let me give you an illustration of this and then draw one other principle from it. So when all of this was taking place, there was an interview between two key leaders in the, the wokeification of evangelicalism. 
And I'm just going to say who it is because it's important to the dialogue on it. It was between Walter Strickland, Southern Baptist, and Carl Ellis Jr. And they were having this interview, and they were talking about all of these other issues. But then they were talking about how do you implement a program like this into your institution? Look, can I can stop you for a second? One is from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, Strickland, and the other one is from? Reformed Theological Seminary. Correct. That's Legan Duncan's seminary, right? It is okay, Legan yeah, Duncan's okay. seminary. Okay, go ahead. I'm sorry. And here's how, how it went. They were telling this story because remember yesterday when we were talking about how liberation theologians have to reinterpret biblical text to sort of bring you into the story so that you can see yourself as the oppressed or the person that needs to be liberated from your situation and so on and so forth. And they do it in a variety of different ways. So they're telling this story about Joseph. And, you know, Joseph came into leadership under one pharaoh, and then he went through his whole ordeal, and a new pharaoh arose that knew not Joseph, and then Joseph was placed off into jail. Well, the way that they interpreted that was is that you come in under one administration, and they allow you to do all of your social justice activist work, but there may be a new president that's going to come about who knew not the Joseph, whoever's the the individual bringing about the social justice activist work, and he may send you off to proverbial jail, namely get rid of you. So what was the answer? How do, how do you have to deal with this? Because they were saying, you know, how it's going to happen is, is you're going to have these people that are going to start squawking about what's going on, and it's your job to root out all of the opposition. Think about that. You wonder why you see that the cancer hasn't been removed, to steal your analogy from this, but good organs have been removed? They're rooting out opposition. So the second point to think about is that it's actually a very tactical approach in a warlike setting. For example, during World War II, when we were fighting the Germans, we knew that we had to not only fight soldiers on the ground, but war is a, a very technical battle where you have to deal with you know, armory and machinery and, and roads. And when you're looking at taking out mass movement, it's very difficult to take out every bridge. So what did the United States government do? What did they bomb? They bombed the factories that made ball bearings. Think about the implication of that. You don't need to take out every single road. You just need to take out one strategic part in the whole plan. And what they did is they came in and they in these institutions, and what was the ball bearings? The people in strategic leadership positions or people they knew were openly opposed to this were just removed or blackballed. They were going through this whole idea of removing them from the institutions. Why? It's a tactical war plan. They know exactly what they're doing with it. Again, they were not unaware of it. And you and I had both talked about the use of entryism before. Could you describe a little bit of what entryism is? Yeah, entryism or entrism has two different names. I don't know why they decide to put the Y sometimes and not other times, just in case you're looking for words. Um, it's, it's a strategy where what you're going to do is infiltrate an organization by squeezing out or removing or purging by one means or another the good people while creating a policy of replacement that will only bring in people who are ideologically conforming. So, for example, you make it intolerable at a university to work if you're not woke, and then all new hires have a diversity statement that they have to sign. Or you make it horrific to be a police officer until you have a crime crisis and you have to have a massive new police hiring program. 
And when you have the hiring program, you already have DEI policies and training in place so that you're only going to hire people who conform because most people don't want to. That's more serious in the military. You squeeze them out by forcing them to do things like get injections or making the military woke or making the Air Force cadets run with a pride flag or whatever that they don't want to do. Recruitment's at all-time low. But you start squeezing out people who are, who are going to resist or who wouldn't go along with, say, you know, a woke military coup should something like that come along. You get those people out, and then all recruitment following that, you start playing a bunch of videos that are really weird and cartoony and straight-up gay, and you try to recruit people who are going to be ideologically conforming, and you put them through basic training to make sure that only the people who conform are the ones who sign up and stay in. So entryism is a means of entering into and taking over a institution by getting rid of the people who would oppose you by one means or another. It can literally be as simple as if you're in a university, this happened to a friend of mine, and something in your office breaks and you call maintenance, they just never show up to fix it. Hey, the coat hook fell off my wall. Call maintenance, can you guys come over with a screwdriver or whatever, put this thing back, you know, fix the hole in the wall. Three months later, it's still on the floor. You come in with a screwdriver one day, the maintenance guy shows up immediately like, hey, hey, you can't fix that. We'll put a work order in for it. Three months later, it's still not fixed. Just making things annoying. It's this kind of a passive aggressive to make you hate being there until you leave. So you get the good people out by whatever means. It can be as simple as that. It can be a direct purge. Usually isn't because that's kind of obvious. And then you set up policies and procedures to make sure that the only people who stay and the only people who join up later are um, ideologically in line with you. Or they don't even have to be ideologically in line with you. They just have to be what are sometimes called ordinary men. Just doing my job, sir. Don't question why they're doing their job. Don't question the, the moral valence of the job. Just doing what I was told, which uh, is a very important concept to understand the, the banality of evil that's sometimes called. Now, let me tell you how this actually works in practical ways within specifically the Southern Baptist Convention, like the, the entry point. It happened with individuals, but it also happened through Resolution 9. And most people don't understand, like, the real effect of it is this. is Yes, they snuck it in. Yes, we know all of the politics about it. But after it was in, it provided this test where they could now start enacting these policies within our different organizations and our seminaries because it would say something like this. Well, the consensus of the convention has shown this is how we are thinking about this matter. That's a functional way of rewriting your handbook. And that's specifically how it's worked. So then you sit down and you have some, you know, woke pastor that prays, dear Lord, please forgive us of our years upon years of systemic oppression from people of majority culture. And then they bring in things like the 1995, you know, resolution on racism as interpreted through resolution nine and just say, well, I'm just keeping with the spirit of where the convention is today. It's a, it's a specific tactic that's used to further the dialogue and to, in effect, rewrite a either known or unknown policy book within different denominations. Just real quick, and I'll let Andy run with this. Another effect is to make it, it's called demoralization, is to make it so pastors and churches are like, you know what, I'm sick of it, I'm leaving the convention. Right. I'm out. Right. And so the people who would be the, the opposition voluntarily remove themselves from the situation because it sucks. They make it uncomfortable, they make it annoying, they make it ideologically um, painful, I guess, even to, to participate. 
you have to go against your own principles to stay in the club. And then they, he says, you know, oh, the convention's consensus. Consensus is what the postmodern Leotard warned about is legitimation by paralogy. Paralogy is paralogos, or the roots. Para means beside. Logos means logic or word. And so what you have now is a separate logic that's generated by consensus that's fake. It's a fake justification, and they create that, and part of the pressure, though, or part of the purpose of it, in addition to everything Bill just said, is that it is to pressure churches and pastors who are good people to abandon ship and say, you know what, I'm out. And as Arizonans, I'm sure you're used to Californians coming and saying, you know what, I'm out. Uh, it's the same phenomenon, but within the, within the convention. And, and then what's right before he starts is that then, as those churches move, then they seek to have some sort of affinity consensus themselves, and then the same process starts all over again, right? right? Um, after I say what I say, if we want to shift to move the conversation forward to more recent events, that might be good. I don't know. Um, but um, why are we talking about Southern Baptists so much? Because uh, at least half this time has been spent on that. Um, most of us, including yourselves, are not currently Southern Baptists. The reason why we're talking about it is because this is, number one, America's largest Protestant denomination. It's not a denomination technically, but that's details. It's the largest, it's the largest group of churches in the country by a large measure. So that's number one. Um, number two, they educate something in, some, somewhere in the neighborhood of half of America's pastors. Their six seminaries are six of the largest ten seminaries in the country. So um, I went to Southern Seminary, the largest seminary in the world. Um, you have pastors on your staff here that went to Southern Seminary. So we, we feel the impact of having woke professors, of having Jarvis Williams in the classroom, or Curtis Woods, or uh, any of these other guys who have been teaching all these ideas, or writing Resolution 9, for example. Um, so that's a, a huge part of why this is. Even if you're not in the convention, as goes the convention, so goes the rest of evangelicalism, to, to a large degree. Because you can have small pockets of resistance, but if you have this behemoth in the room that is pushing a certain direction, it's very difficult to stop it. Now, our church pulled out of the convention, so we were only ever in it for like a year, and that took a significant act of persuasion to get our congregation to say, hey, yeah, this is a good idea. And then things went absolutely nuts, and we're like, okay, we'll just take our marbles and go home. Um, so there, there's a lot, of, um, a lot of people in those types of positions where you know, I planted a church uh, with zero funding from NAM. NAM is the Southern Baptist Church Planning Organization. Um, they were saying, hey, we need, we need church planners. We, don't we can't find enough church planners. So I contact them. I'm like, hey, you know, I know we've had some, a rough relationship over the last few years, but Kevin Ezell says you don't have enough church planners and you have more money than you know what to do with. I planted one church. We can plant a second. And they said, Andy, that's a non-starter. We don't want to work with you. And um, so that's part of the, the tactic to keep out conservatives in order to, to continue planting more and more and more woke churches. Sounds um, like the Department of Education. Yeah, no, it's the same DOE, um, the military, the police, any, it's, it's the same tactic happening all over the country. 
But did you want to get into events of the last six months or so? Apparently you do. I so do. Now let's, you're directing let's, the panel. Let's, let's talk about... So, let's get so ready Andy, to let, rumble. Oh, okay. let's, talk about, let's talk about Christian nationalism. Hey, um, by the way, this was Andy. Yeah, this is, this is my idea. I figure I could bring this up because um, I don't work here, live here, or... Uh, any of that stuff. So, well, as everybody knows, like I kicked off a of Twitter and it said for like four months that I'm America's top Christian nationalist. So maybe I started it. So, so for for a long time, the expression Christian nationalist was a uh, negative term used by the left to attack Christians who it still is who it's, wanted. It's, still, it's, it's attacking me. My Wikipedia entry. Go look it up right now. It's really funny. Uh, actually accuses me of being owned and operated, by the way, full disclosure, false, by Christian nationalist Michael O'Fallon. Which, okay, right. That's an attack vector on me right now that my business is owned by, he owns the domain on the website, that's how they figured it out, uh, owned by, white, or sorry, Christian nationalist Mike. that's the label they gave him. The links to their, their propaganda page about how evil it is. Right. And by the way, let me give again, let's go back a few years. Um, after I had met with several other pastors, with Danny Aiken and Albert Moeller and Walter Strickland, within about a month, Jack Jenkins, who is a writer for, was a writer for Religious News Service, which is a progressive left news service uh, website that anybody that writes for that website basically is somebody who's bought and sold with the progressive left in this whole movement. Actually, you know some people that have written for him. Anyway, but RNS. And so um, he called me up and called up my staff and so forth and wanted to talk with me. He was just writing a book basically that was saying that it is the, the Christian nationalist right, white Christian nationalists that will be the biggest threat to this country. So he calls me and I agreed to talk to him. And for an hour and a half, we have the recording, he kept on trying to get me to say that I'm a Christian nationalist. And I'm not. I'm not. Um, I would say I'm not even really a nationalist. I believe in nationism. I believe in sovereign nations. Okay, I believe that what our national and our constitutional framework of our nation is not necessarily the way that he would want me to say that it is, or that those that are now claiming that they're Christian nationalists who are becoming that boogeyman that the left wanted them to be. So this was back in 2019, and I refused to say that I was that. So he went on the side that actually I was somehow um, scheming with Jordan Peterson to take over the white males and so forth, which is nonsense. You worked with Hydra, wow. Okay, yeah, right. Right. Oh. exactly. So anyway, uh, that's the background on this. So... It was quite a while ago that I knew that Christian nationalism was going to be the thing that the left would warn everybody about. And then all of a sudden, within our own circles, we were encouraged now to start adopting the term Christian nationalist. Anyway, did you? Uh, yeah, thank you. Um, so in, in the time that James Lindsay was kicked off Twitter, by the time he got back on Twitter, this movement has appeared seemingly out of nowhere that is now owning the label Christian nationalist, Correct. but a number of people who are of those organizations, writing for them, paid by them, et cetera, um, are actually still tied up with the people who built the woke movement. Correct. So 
for me, not involved in any of those conversations, just looking at it through publicly available information, as you all can do, reading the blogs, seeing, oh, this guy's a Gospel Coalition guy, but he's writing for American Reformer. What's going on here? Um, or, oh, this guy works for Al Mohler. Mohler still has Jarvis Williams, Timothy Paul Jones, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, still teaching for him currently. I don't trust this. I don't know where they're headed or what is being built right now, but I don't trust any of it. And this was a whole thing that developed in the last like four months, it seems. Yeah, I mean, I might point out to you that there's a movement in the world right now that uses words so that they have two meanings at once. Maybe one, you know, in the language of gods and one on the tongues of us men. And uh, a lot of good people, a lot of good conservative Christians who are Americans and are patriots. Yes love to say, well, I am a Christian nationalist. And by what they mean is that they are a Christian and they are a nationalist. And so for some reason, the extra syllable and is really onerous and you can't say it. I'm Christian and I'm a nationalist. And even nationalist, by the way, is a very loaded word. Because when you say nationalist, you think somebody who's a patriot. And what they mean is somebody who's a member of one of the nationalist parties, like in China, the Guomintang, which was socialist. Or in Germany, the National Socialist Workers' Party, which was the Nazis. When they say nationalist, they mean fascist movements, and you think it means I support my country, because they know that the word has two meanings. But when they get people who think, yes, I'm patriotic, and yes, I'm faithful, to say I'm Christian, I'm a Christian nationalist, because it's so much more convenient to drop and out of the expression, I'm a Christian and a nationalist, or as uh, our friend Vocal Distance, who's not here, is wanting to phrase it, I am a faithful patriot, which is a much more accurate description of what you mean. They get you to say, I am a Christian nationalist, which as Mike has pointed out, and you can see on my Wikipedia page to this day, uh, is a hole that has been dug in the ground, like you got this path, the right is gonna follow this path, it's gonna push back against the woke, the left's like, let's go down the, the road and dig a great big hole and make a pit and a trap, we'll put spikes on the bottom. And my experience often has been that the right wing has never seen a hole in the ground, it doesn't wanna jump face first into. <laughs> and when I saw the Christian nationalist thing immediately, that's what I thought, so that's why it had started to rumble right when I got kicked off of Twitter at the beginning of August. That's why my handle on Twitter, because I always change it to make fun of something, was America's top Christian nationalist, which was really funny because it stayed there for 200 days or 100, 130 days or something like that. I don't know what it was. Four months, some odd. So it stayed there, and all these articles when I first got kicked off of Twitter were like, and he should be. He's, a, he's America's top Christian nationalist, <laughs> which is like, got him. Uh, okay. But this is, for me, what I see is that, yet again, the discernment I understand what a lot of people who are good people are trying to say, but they aren't discerning that there is a trap laid in those words. That the words nationalist, yeah, you'd think you know what it means, but your definition doesn't count. Correct, correct. And when you say Christian's fine, I mean, it's, it's a word that's had its own challenges, but what you actually mean is that you're patriotic to your country, you want your country to succeed, you love your country, and that you're faithful in your Christianity. And if you, at the very least, should be adding the and in between, because I'm telling you, it's why is it on my Wikipedia page to discredit me by connecting me to him, by calling him a Christian nationalist, which he's publicly disavowed dozens of times, but it turns out Wikipedia doesn't accept firsthand testimony or your own podcast or anything as evidence right. of something. 
And if you go to the, if you go, it's a link. You can go to the Wikipedia entry, click on not Michael O'Fallon's name right before it. It's Christian nationalist Michael O'Fallon. And if you click on the Christian nationalist, it explains how it's basically a hate group movement. You are voluntarily stepping into a label that the narrative machine is going to consider a hate group. In the midst of a huge thing where the DOJ and the military and the White House and the, the intelligence agencies have been saying falsely for a few years that nationalist hate groups are the biggest threat to our country. We have to have an extremism stand down. So again, I say the unfortunate side of working with, with people on the right that I've discovered in the past few years is they've never seen a hole dug in the ground that they don't want to dive into. Right. And I'm watching people dive into this either in good-natured ignorance, which is often the case, it's difficult to have the discernment to see how words are traps, but then you have to wonder if the people who are pushing it so vigorously are these good-natured people who are falling into a linguistic trap, or if they're Pied Pipers who want you to jump into the hole, and they promise they'll jump in after you, go ahead. Right, and when they say Christian nationalists, in almost every circumstance of those that are trying to lead this movement now, and lead people into this trap, in, and there's been these things that I've been saying for over a year, trying to explain it, because I heard these plans over a decade ago. Remember what I said. We're talking about the problem, reaction, solution. Solution is the goal from those that are first creating the problem. But if you can create the problem and the reaction to it to be able to get you to the solution that you want, which is the elimination of anybody that would resist what you want to do to reach to your solution... Well, that's the plan. That's why you put it into place in the first place. So when, you, when they say Christian nationalists, in your mind you're thinking, oh, they mean preserving the United States. Well, in almost every situation, they're talking about, let's eliminate your inalienable rights, let's get rid of the First Amendment, and let's put in place some sort of state-controlled magisterium. Let's get rid of the 19th Amendment, and one of the reasons they're doing that is, of course, to make themselves that toxic masculine kind of vision of what the left wants them to be, to eliminate all women's voting rights. And as soon as you see that, you, can, you know quite seriously that they have no intention of trying to take back the nation. You know, they have no intention of winning. So once you start to see this caricature that's being created, and of course all of the trolls and anonymous accounts that have all the crusader motifs and so forth, and then you have folks like Andrew Torba that comes to attack me on Twitter, uh, and then he's banned because he's saying anti-Semitic things. And yet somehow anti-Semitic language is along with this and is being popularized. Like, why can't we talk about this? I mean, you've heard of the red pill and the blue pill, and sometimes you've heard of the black pills and the white pills. There's pills for everything these days. They, there are actually people in these circles calling that the Jew pill. You take the Jew pill, and then you know that it's actually the Jews that are behind everything, which, as we were talking about last night, is not correct. It is hermetic wizards that are behind this that have infected Judaism as much as they've affected, infected Christianity as much as they've infected science and perverted a lot of things. Now, this is funny because when, when I went to London at the end of 2019 with Mike and we did a conference there, I got invited on a podcast called Trigonometry, and we were actually talking openly. And if you read Cynical Theories... Uh, which we had written but not published at that time, we are w warning about that. We, we, we talked about the fear that we had that the right was being baited into accepting labels like racist. Right, right. We were like, people eventually are going to fall, they're going to break, and they're going to say, you know what, 
screw it, I'm racist or whatever, right? They're gonna just gonna give up. And they're gonna adopt the label and they're gonna let it become part of their personality. And once they start adopting the label, they're gonna start living up to it. And we were really f afraid at the end of 2019 that that was a trap that was being set. And then I noticed that my, you know, particularly, uh, we might say country or whatever you wanna say, kind of staunchly conservative, whatever friends, actually somewhat reactionary friends, weren't falling into that trap. I started having conversations with them. They're like, no, the word racism doesn't mean anything to me anymore, but I know what it is and I'm not going to do it. And I breathed a huge sigh of relief. Christian nationalist is the term that sounds good enough that people will step into it. Americans learned and have decided and understand properly that racism is not good and they are able to do the discernment on their own and they are not going to step into just adopting the label. But then this Christian nationalist lure has been proving a little bit too tempting because racist is bad, Christian and nationalist sound good, so they've launched right into it. And then like we've heard from you know Mr. Torba and others, there's a great deal of anti-Semitism that's getting latched onto it. And that causes within the movement, once you say, well, this is what I am, what does it mean to be this? You start walking down that Pied Piper or Primrose path being laid for you and it's like, oh, we're gonna get Jew pilled. Oh, so it was all the Jews or whatever, blah, blah, blah. I even saw some flippant comment on my Twitter, somebody saying, because I'd said something about Gnosticism or Hermeticism, and somebody actually replied, it's just some nobody, but the, this is a narrative that's going to come up following you know, the dissemination of this conference. The first Gnostic was a Jew, and they're going to just keep trying to do this and do this and do this and do this because they need to create that caricature so that they can wrap up the right that's fighting the woke portray it as a freak show reactionary movement, and then use it to discredit whether it's MAGA, whether it's Christians, whether it's conservative Christians, whether it's just, I mean, the way they operate, it might be as simple as just discrediting Donald Trump. Uh, that they're gonna try to say that that's his real supporters, blah, 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 because for some reason they're real upset about Donald Trump still. <laughs> they're really, really upset about him. And so, again, it's like Andy says, is it something that there needs to be some caution and reflection rather than this kind of like knee-jerk, okay, they want to call me this, well, those are good words, I'm in. Uh, kind of jump into, I'm going to defy them by adopting this term and trying to flip it over. Sometimes you can turn a word over on them. I mean, Trump technically did that with fake news. It was originally an attack vector from the left. Trump took it. Now we all know how that works. But it's so difficult to beat them at a word game, especially one that they've spent so long stoking. Nationalism has been a bugbear that communists have been in, in, inculcating fear of for a century. And it's not something that's gonna be easy to just turn back with the average person. So it's gonna be much easier to convince them that, oh, MAGA or conservative Christianity is just a bunch of anti-Semites and 25, 30, 40% of our movement and the rest by association get wrecked and the woke movement proceeds apace um, and you know, jump in the hole, I promise I'll jump in after you uh, kind of mentality. Now, would you say that in a lot of the different leading groups of Christian nationalism and some of the literature that's put out, it, that it, it appears that there's a lot of almost Hegelian, Herderian kind of themes that are being used, even Nietzschean. I, I saw one of the leaders of one of the groups that said that he's definitely, you know, grabbing onto a will to power and so forth. You know, the libido dominandi, the, the megalomania that lies behind the, the hermetic or the Gnostic impulse. I mean, I see, when 
I was, I was reading a, a paper about Hegel the other day, a paper that's called something like Hegel and the State or something like this by some scholar. And I'm reading this and I'm reading through it and I, I immediately emailed it to Mike. I was like, Mike, you have to read this. This is, yeah. this is exactly describing what Hegel's perfect idea of the state, which is very different than Marx's idea of the state. So the, the guy writing this is an academic kind of trying to rescue Hegel from his own statements that were things like the state is God bestriding the earth the state is the divine idea as it exists on earth. The state is God doing his will on the world. Things like this that Hegel fully believed. Hegel was kind of the first really, really big statist in the kind of dialectical frame or in the modern era. And he's trying to kind of rescue him and say, well, Hegel's state actually looks a lot like the American Republic. And he's laying it all out, except it has a properly chosen monarch. It has a properly chosen king, and this so it'll be a constitutional monarchy, and Hegel has his whole vision of it. So I'm reading this, and it's like everything that I've heard from the, 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 so the so-called neo-reaction group or the, the Christian nationalist people pushing it is very explicitly that what they think is that they have some kind of a secret code by which they're going to figure out who gets to be the rightful ruler, and we're going to pretend to keep the constitutional order, but we're actually going to, going to stick a monarch in place that has enough power to be able to stamp out our enemies and drive them before us so we can hear the, hear the wailing of their women or whatever Conan the Barbarian said, which, by the way, that was a movie. Um, it was a fiction <laughs> that, they, that they tried to aspire to. So I see the Hegelian flavor of it extremely clearly uh, in the same way that I see the Hegelian flavor very clearly of other reactionary movements that have taken place. Uh, throughout history where they take up the means of their enemy and believe that they're going to be able to apply them. Uh, a lot of the nationalism in Germany followed from the character Herder, um, who is not well known by a lot of Americans. And I'm not going to claim to be an expert on Herder, but Herder was very into the concept of a folk nationalism. There was already a strong nationalism kind of feel, vibe going on. Hegel claimed that he was creating a folk religion that would help build a national identity for a disunified Germany. A lot of people think, oh, Germany. But you know, in 1800, it was not, oh, Germany. It was a bunch of states that kind of got along with each other and often didn't. That um, They weren't a unified thing. And the idea was to come up with a unified identity. Lots of pieces go into that. So German nationalism is a thing. So it turns out there's another character that went and studied Herder and decided that the best way to kind of deal with the issues he was dealing with would be to kind of create the idea of a nationalism in identity. So we have Christian nationalism following from Herder. If you actually read, what is it, Stephen Wolf? I can't keep my wolf straight. Doesn't he say explicitly that it's a Herderian construct? He does now. I, I, I haven't yet re read the book. I like Stephen uh, personally from years ago, and I, I don't want to say too much about that book until I read it. But yeah, yes, I haven't read it yet does. either. I yeah. intend to read it over the holiday. Uh, <laughs> I have those sometimes, right? So anyway, um, this character I'm mentioning is W.E.B. Du Bois, who is considered the godfather of critical race theory. He went to Germany in the 1890s. He stayed there for about 18 months. He was going to do his PhD there, but he didn't finish it. He finished it at Harvard. What a shock. And he got so involved in the idea of German nationalism and the Kaiser that he, if you ever see pictures or, of, of W.E.B. Du Bois, it looks like to your first glimpse, you're like, why is this black guy trying to pretend he's Chinese? 
the way he did his beard, the way he did his facial hair, the way he wore his clothes. But it turns out he wasn't trying to be Chinese. He was trying to look like a late Prussian nationalist. He celebrated the Kaiser's birthday till his death. He sang the, the nationalist songs of the, of the late Prussian era. He fully went into this. And what he came back and did was wrote a book called The Souls of Black Folk. And he was creating a folk religion for a black nation that sees itself as somehow separate from the American nation, which, of course, he wasn't quite totally explicit with wanting to separate, separate, but that became a gigantic movement following his work in the 50s and 60s, the black separatist and black nationalist movements that fed into a lot of the black liberation movement, that fed into a lot of the critical race theory thought, and in fact underpins a lot of it to where critical race theorists will often tell you that W.E.B. Du Bois was the first critical race theorist. And what he was doing was adopting Herderian identity politics, identity nationalism, and I see the same tones in this movement, which I haven't read that specific book, uh, but I, I see the same tones in this movement of trying to find a nationalist identity, or actually an identity that you create a nationalist movement around uh, and lean fully into that and start searching for what it means. So I see the exact same kinds of constructs uh, happening there, and the same kind of separatist language gets used. Oh well, we're going to set up, you know, we're going to we're going to get a state to secede or whatever, which is sedition, and we're going to set it up as a Christian nation, or we're going to balkanize the United States, and it'll be the, the blue parts and the red parts, or we're going to even set up, uh, you know, Christian areas where this. Then this is one of their solutions I've heard from Christian nationalists on social media. And they say that, well, no, you know, this region can have this kind of interpretation of the Bible. Because I was like, okay, if we're going to have a Christian nation, which church do I have to go to and which government agency is going to make me go there? That's the question I want to know. Which government agency is going to adjudicate and say, guess what? Southern Baptists in, Jehovah's Witnesses out. You guys don't count. Or Southern Baptists in, Catholics out to make it a little bigger. Or what do we call them? Credo Baptists in, Pado Baptists out. What government agency gets to decide that? And what happens when it's Donald Trump's agency? What happens when it's Joe Biden's agency? What happens when it's Obama's agency? Why do we want that? And I ask these questions, they say, no, no, no. What we're going to do is we're going to have different regions that will have different places, different, different interpretations. And any of them can be within the United States broadly because that's religious freedom. And you can just move to the one that you want. But atheism, and this is the author of the book said this, I heard him say this, will be destroyed. It will be stamped out. So which government agency are you going to send to send me to jail because I didn't sign up for the church that your other government agency said is okay? I, want, I just want to know which one you want to do that if it's going to be stamped out. And these are the kinds of questions that I'm looking at, but I'm, again, we go back and we see this idea that we're going to have, oh, we'll have autonomous regions that are now operating under their particular theology, and the, your solution to this problem is you get to move to the one that has the theology you like. Yeah, you have roots in Arizona? Well, tough, the one that you wanted to, to your theology's in Kentucky. Don't like it? Move. The old school libertarian solution to everything. Don't fix the politics, just move somewhere else. Because that's super easy for everybody, right? So this is what I see happening though, and definitely Hegel, Herder, are kind of explicitly there, this nationalist movement rooted off of a folk nationalism, a folkish nationalism, 
that is the exact same thing I criticize critical race theory for. Literally exactly the same thing, that it tries to create a folkish identity. Correct. Whether it's in black, whether it's in Hispanic, Latin crit, or Asian crit, or switching out of race. Queer culture, which you're supposed to use drag queens to induce children into queer culture and queer ways of living and being. They have their own culture, they have their own you know, shows, they have their own language, they have their own families. I see the same flavors happening, the same folkish nationalism tucked in an identity that's using Christian as the thing. So it's called basically the big sort. And as much as I've been trying to warn people about the Great Reset, at the same time over the past five years, I've been warning them about the big sort. And that's what this opportunity is. So it's going to be in all different affinity groups in terms of your ethnicity, in terms of your religious beliefs, in terms of all sorts of things, and to balkanize the nation. So here's just quickly, uh, some things, we're going to make these predictions. I've actually already made them quite a while ago with several people behind the scenes and as well some things I've said in my podcast, which, as James has reminded me just recently, people will always forgive you for being wrong, but they will almost never forgive you for being right. Okay? But we're going to go ahead and do this. So, number one, yes, you can, you're going to see an attempt to balkanize the nation. Um, this is going to be not just through the real far right fringe, but also some that you would consider more middle right. So they're going to start talking about making sure that we fracture the nation and everybody needs to move here or there, whatever the case is, as opposed to standing and fighting. Number two, uh, you're going to see a concerted effort of all of those, especially on the evangelical side and as well on the right political side, to blame liberalism for the reason that we got here. Not the fact that it was those that were considered the Christian right that brought in the woke in the first place and corrupted the church over the past 30 years completely and are the ones that actually helped to give rise to or allow the rise to revoice and living out of these other groups that happened within the PCA and SBC and so forth. No, now they're going to blame liberals for everything. And they're going to say that... Post-liberal. What's they that? call it post-liberal. There's a post-liberal right and a post-liberal left, and the post-liberal right's kind of talking point is freedom is a social construct. Just keep that in the back of your head. Correct. So that's basically one of the attempts of what they're going to try to do. They're also going to say that they need to set up a magisterium of some sort. So they want to blend both the state and faith, which is what I, why I addressed this in 2019 in our conversation on the Trojan Horse, why I addressed the concept of the monarchical episcopate which a lot of people caught, like, what is he talking about? It's like, that's what's coming. That's how they say it's going to work, is that what they mean by Christian nationalists is that it's going to be the duty of pastors to advise people in power to make sure that God is represented, uh, his voice, or his mind is represented in government. But again, the question is, okay, so the president is going to be surrounded or the governor is going to be surrounded by faith leaders, which government agency is going to be the one that determines which ones get to be there and which ones don't? What happens when that government agency gets infiltrated by Klaus Schwab's World Economic Forum young global leaders? Or faith leaders. Yeah, yeah, or his faith leaders, that's right. What happens when it's these pastors selling us out to the WEF, which are the ones most politically placed to occupy those positions, are the ones with the buddy-buddy networks, are the ones networked into power? What happens when they're the ones I can tell you what your faith is going to look like. It's going to look like the most conservative possible thing it can pass as while being committed to the sustainable development goals. Yep. Uh, remember we talked about integralism and integralismo? 
That's what it is. I want to close here for each each of our panelists just to give us a final thought here in just like a minute or two minutes of how you see the situation. I want to start with Andy on this side. Uh, speaking for myself, not anyone else, I see a very clear um, epistemological line or a theory of knowledge, a foundational worldview line from the attack on classical epistemology, the attack on Thomas Aquinas, through these same players and all kinds of public statements to the current rise in Christian nationalism as an idea, not as a successful thing, but just as an idea, which then is splitting up and destroying the conservative movement, and then actually creating genuine racist, genuine white supremacists um, to create the real enemy that the left has been talking about and caricaturing. So it's a, it's a fairly complex argument which I don't have time for right now, but I do see it and I've talked to people who are smarter than me and they're like, yeah, that's, that's there. The epistemology from attacking classical epistemology through to this deconstructing America to deconstruct the Constitution, to deconstruct uh, classical liberalism, which is different from leftism. So just drop that there and leave it. So. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I mean, Bill? to piggyback off of what he was saying is, is that you know, we were talking yesterday about these different idealistic revolutions that have taken place within the history of ideas. You've got the idealistic metaphysical revolution of Plato. You've got the idealistic epistemological revolution of Kant. You've got the hermeneutical idealistic revolution with Schleiermacher. And you've got postmodern idealistic revolutions. And now you've got this sort of simulacrity revolution that's taking place. But who have been probably the two strongest philosophers in the history of ideas to destroy idealistic revolutions. Aristotle and Thomas Aquinas. I've been saying this for years. And I mean, I'll lay my cards on the table. Like I'm a committed Aristotelian Thomistic thinker for those reasons. I don't want to buy into those idealistic trends because I know where they go. So you ask why the attack on Aquinas? Why now? Why here? Well, what does Aquinas provide for us? Not only a a classical way of destroying forms of idealism, but he gives us the ro most robust understanding of natural law and what that would look like as a constitutional framework for the West. So in many respects, if you can take out Aquinas, you've taken out the, the probably the chief architect who can destroy both idealism and this concept of a natural law that undergirds so much of just Western society in that regard. And I keep saying to people who are pushing back against this, like idealism by any other name is still idealism, just like a rose by any other name is still idealism. Perspectivalism by any other name is still perspectivalism. And if you want to have your so-called Christian perspectivalism, it's still perspectivalism. I mean, that's what people don't realize where we're using these things as just distractions for the real battle is idealism versus realism and what that's going to look like in a constitutional form represented in the classic concept of natural law possibilities there. One other thing that goes on with this is, is that, as we've seen here, society at large is really good at using distractions to get us away from what we're trying to talk about. And these issues and who we should listen to and who we should not listen to. And 
it's funny because when I first said that I was going to come to this conference, what was the first thing that I heard? What do you think I heard, asking you in particular? Because you've already touched on this. How could you speak there because... Is it me? Yes. You don't want to be near your ugly side chick, dude. Oh, I don't mind. So Not in public. So, but here's, here's what I've said. I, I joked with this guy, and I've used this before. We all know the old phrase. You know, if the, if the law is on your side, pound the law. If the facts are on your side, pound the facts. And neither are on your side, just pound the table. Well, in this sense, if, if they don't like many of the arguments that are coming forth here and the way that we're doing it, you know, if the facts are not on your side or if the arguments are not on your side, then pound the table with the genetic fallacy and just label James Lindsay as an atheist and move on. It just means that they're crybabies and using his phrase from yesterday, it's like mean girls reenacted. And that's, the, that's what I actually expect the response to be. So it's like, I want to tell you how to fight the battle. Deal with the arguments. Don't attack the persons anymore. Isn't it interesting, though, that what figure within the Southern Baptist Convention was necessary and as well actually helped to create the architecture within the seminary system that was necessary for woke to take over over the past 12 years? Who was it? Yeah. Al Mohler. Who is it that you find now at the center of the Christian nationalist movement and the way that it's being integrated into the Southern Baptist Convention, into other groups and so forth, and as well having all sorts of folks that are graduating from the seminary and as, as well, people that used to write with the Gospel Coalition and others, who's really at the center of that movement? Al Moeller. Okay. So. Is that why they call him Weathervane Al? Well, Chameleon Al, Weathervane Al, I mean, whatever you want to say. Yes, whatever way the wind is blowing out. So, Dr. Lindsay? I mean, just since you brought that up, we're talking about Christian national. L listen, you've got to learn to start looking at the words that people are using. You've got to figure out how they're often words are being architected for your demise. They want you to, to fall into traps like deplorable or whatever. That was when we flipped over, by the way. That, that They went too far with that, so it actually became what the left would call a positive discourse of resistance. You will not find that with Christian nationalism, but another one you're not gonna find it with, think about this for like 20 seconds, really, national conservatism, really? I mean, we had national socialism, now we have national conservatism, and what is, what is the national conservative movement now calling for? We're the Workers' Party. Like, are you kidding me? Yes. We're, are you kidding? So we're going to have a national conservative Workers' Party? Huh. That couldn't possibly be a trap. If you don't know the Nazis' national, or the actual name was the National Socialist Workers' Party. So now we're going to have a national conservative Workers' Party. This isn't a linguistic trap for you to fall into. You must be discerning about this. But I actually don't want to talk about, I mean, you know, Al was at their conference or whatever, so that's why I brought that up. But I don't want to talk specifically about that as my, I guess, final words for the panel. What I want to talk about is the moment we find ourselves in, both within this kind of Christian context and in the broader uh, national context as, as conservatives as, and as Americans and as patriots, which is that we've had this movement, this is where we started, we've had this movement and had momentum and it was kind of moving in a unified way, and now it feels very much like if I might draw an analogy to a billiards table, like, the, like we were racked and broken. The balls have been scattered. We're all pointing in different directions. What I would tell you is that if this was a pool game, really, and the, the, the frustration that the red wave didn't appear, or whatever it was supposed to be, um, has allowed for this energy to scatter people, which I think is the case. Republicans have a bad habit of putting all their hopes and hanging them on a national election that they weren't going to win anyway, and then being 
absolutely distraught and looking in every direction and blaming everybody that they can blame. Oh, it's Donald Trump's fault. No, it's Ron DeSantis' fault. It's everybody's fault. Everybody other, everybody's fault. They, they tend to do this every time that they get cheated in a national election. And that will fade. I want you to take hope first. That will fade. That stress, that frustration, that desperation to like say, how did this go wrong? And to point at your neighbor, that will fade over a few months. So don't get sucked into it. Because if this were a billiards game, after you break the table, what is the next thing you do? Your job is to drive in balls. So what they're going to do is they're going to take various people in various positions within the broader conservative or just Americanist movement, MAGA or whatever you want to be or call it, it doesn't matter. The people who care about and want to save America in general, make America America again movement maybe. They're going to try to drive those balls into different pockets where they're now stuck and off the table. Wow. So they're going to take yeah. the ball and they're going to you're going to break the balls apart and then they're going to drive them in. Oh, Christian nationalists. Once you go in the pocket, they're going to set it up so you're off the table. And then they're going to come up with other ones. National conservatives, once you go in the pocket, you're off the table. And that's going to be their goal. And that's what you have to be discerning about because you don't want to go jump into the pocket and just take yourself off the table. When you're confronted with some huge push for some movement that seems like it just popped up out of the ground, it's going to be the solution to everything all of a sudden, start asking some questions. What does that mean? Why are they using that name? Does that name have any easy associations? Has the left been using that term for a decade to smear people? Should I just wear that label if that's the case? You have to start thinking about these things very, care very carefully. You have to develop that discernment. I'm not saying never get involved in these things. Some of the things that come up are going to be good. Some of the things that come up are not going to be good. And you want to be able to discern which thing is a thing where the ball's being driven into a pocket to get it off the table. Because what we have to do is stay in play. We have to keep playing. We have to outlast them if we're going to win. And the game is partly to wear us down because they don't want to use overt force, which would completely, they might win, but it will completely delegitimize them if they do that. And they know that. They lose all legitimacy the minute they... They, they clamp down fully, um, as you can see with what's happened in Canada in successive stages over the past year. The more force they've used, the more scary the things that they're doing, the more delegitimized they are to the point where now uh, the New York Post even published an article saying that Canada is no longer a liberal democracy, it is an authoritarian state the other day. So they lose their legitimacy the harder they go. They don't want to do that. How do you stop them? You don't put yourself in a pocket so that your voice can stay on the table because that's the goal is to, to, to put you away and to silence you. And you must be discerning about these movements that are actually traps. Not to say that they're all necessarily bad. You have to think through them when they come up and figure out. And that's the main charge. But realize that there are going to be deliberate attempts to get you to sign up for labels or groups or movements like the America first with this Nick Fuentes character that are going to put you in a pocket, put you in a hole, and what was that anyway? They send him off to have dinner with Trump, and now all his stink gets on Trump. Do you see how they use these things? Be discerning. Don't be that guy. That's, that's my, my, my final word on that. And I do want to say um, we understand men and young men who are frustrated that for years we're told that you can't be a young man in the way that you were made to be a young man. Um, I get it. And I agree. But what you don't want to do is be basically led by the siren song onto the rocks 
of another movement that will completely and eventually destroy humanity. And they understand how to use that. So again, what James has said, what Andy has said, what Bill has been warning about is you need to stop, pause, take a satellite view of everything that we've just been through over the past three years and realize that you've been manipulated this entire time. When something else demands for you to jump on the bandwagon or catch the next wave of the next thing, pause and say, I'll sit it out the first ride. I want to watch and see what's actually happening. Just, just try that for us, please. Because I think if you look at all the things that he, even Andy, in the short time that he's been a pastor in New York, that Bill's been saying, that James has been saying for years, that I've been saying, we all have receipts. We haven't been wrong yet. I mean, it's not the possibility that we could be wrong about something in the future or some detail, but we've been correct so far. And I'm not just saying that to toot our own horn. I'm saying, please, take time, consider, be discerning, do your homework before you jump on all and just abandon all reason to some movement that could lead to all of our destruction. Thank you. We're over time. I'm going to take that time off of my speech, and uh, we'll come back for a short message from me in about 10 minutes. Thank you so much. Thank you.